Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of Friday, September 13th, 2019. It is a spooky cast this week. And uh, I'm Charles Hain, tech writer at No Film School. I'm George Edelman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. And I am Jordan Pacheco, cinematographer and occasional reviewer at No Film School. This week we're going to be talking about the brand new iPhone 11 Pro and an amazing new app that is already out for it. We're going to be talking about the C500 Mark II from Canon, which is full frame coming into a cinema package that some of us might actually afford um, to rent. I'm still not buying one. And then the greatest DPs are finding their options for work limited. All that along with some IBC tech news, specifically the Airy Orbiter, because holy shit, that, that light is a curb stomp in the best possible way. And then we've got an Ask No Film School about how many delivery formats you should be expecting to make. That is this week on the No Film School Podcast. First up this week on the No Film School podcast, Apple uh, has come out with a new iPhone, the iPhone 11, and there's now an iPhone Pro. And frankly, if nothing else came out of this week, their naming finally makes sense again. I feel like the last three years, there's been like an 8 and an X at the same time. And then last year, there was like an XR and an XS, and it was very confusing. And now they have like the 11, the 11 Pro, and the 11 Pro Supersize. And I feel like it, like I get it now. I'm like, okay, the naming makes sense. But the Pro is really relevant to filmmakers because it has three lenses built in, and they've been really working on those three lenses. It's a wide, a super wide, and sort of they call it telephoto. It's still not like a telephoto, telephoto, but it's sort of a more punched in. And um, they're all pretty wide aperture. I think it's like a 1.8 and a 2 and a 2.4. So even the slowest of them is still pretty fast for an iPhone lens. And they put a lot of effort into making it so images and video you are capturing can pull data from a variety of the sensors and sort of using the lenses as a field. It's not quite like those light field cameras from a couple years ago, like the L16 that had 16 lenses that like processed it into a single image. But it's, it's moving in that direction where it's like, all right, we're going to have multiple fields of view. I'm really excited about it. I, you know, some of the tests they showed, I think we're really in a place where I think it is going to be really interesting imagery. But the thing that makes this especially interesting to filmmakers is already Filmic has come out with an app um, that lets you record multiple cameras at the same time. So there's three cameras on there. And Filmic, if you don't know Filmic, they're great. They make an app that lets you throw out a lot of the image processing that Apple does. Apple processes that video really heavily. You might have noticed this. If you're shooting in low light, there's like this beautiful dancing noise. But then as soon as you click end record, it's like a smeary, pasty video because they're applying this noise correction that's not great. Filmic records earlier in the image pipeline, so it records more native picture data. That's what Steven Soderbergh used on Unsane. When he's doing a feature film on an iPhone, he's using Filmic. A lot of filmmakers love Filmic. Filmic already has an app that lets you record multiple of those lenses at the same time which I think is like kind of amazing. Why wouldn't you just always record those three ISOs if you can? Like even just as like a backup, like I'm shooting a documentary and I have like my main interview set up and then I set that off to the side, getting an extra wide and an extra tight. Yeah, I mean, I just like everything about this filmic and the iPhone 11 Pro is exciting to me because I mean, I guess my first thought on it and my question to both of you I think could answer is, isn't there a really good case for me to like buy this and not worry about buying a mirrorless camera? 
because there's so much I could do with something like no. this. I don't want to. I don't want to okay, be well, that. I don't want to be the the cavalier granddad here. But uh, after, I mean, you know, I just had kind of a little sesh with the Black Magic Pocket Cinema 6K, which blew me out of the water. So yeah, I guess we're you know funny. So what? The top iPhone was what about thousand dollars or something? So I suppose for fifteen hundred dollars less, you could do that and probably get away with some stuff. Um, but you could also just like still buy a camera. Like <laughs> instead of because, you know, it's like you're you're still losing, I'm sure, some a lot of that versatility, although I'm, I'm really impressed with the image you're still getting out of the fact that now we have a triple camera, telephoto, wide angle lens, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's, it's let me lower my my hatred, general hatred of iPhones, I suppose, a tad. <laughs> no, I mean, I think the key word here, I didn't mean to be quite so catty in my initial response, George, although I really enjoy that I have that level of cat in me. No, but George is the, the word George uh, Jordan just used versatility, right? Like, as a filmmaker, I need the ability, like, to have an audio input where, like, oh, somebody else is mixing audio on a 63 and they have a boom mic and they want to plug that audio into my camera. I'm not going to get that working on an iPhone, right? Like, it's very hard to get audio in, so I'm going to have to do dual sync and I'm going to have to depend upon slating. And there's no way to get time code in for time code sync. And there's no way, like, getting the video image out. You have to use that weird adapter that then goes to HDMI and then you've got to use all of this rigging if you want to have like a monitor in the other room. Like there's all these things that we've gotten really used to as filmmakers that we don't get out of this. Now, can you like have I been tempted to do something where I'm like, oh, my God, I could totally teach an intro to filmmaking class on this where I'm like. If you guys are going out on your own to shoot, learning to work within the limitations, it's one or two person crews, so you're not worried about like how many people can see the image. I think that there's a lot of exciting stuff there. But then there's also always going to be that problem of manual control. Filmic works really hard to make it super intuitive to like set exposure and set focus. And there are other apps out there. I don't want this to sound like a Filmic ad. Filmic just happens to be the one I've used the most. Um, and so I know it the best. And it's the one used most commonly on the big shows. But like that give you close to that level of control, but you're still going to find yourself sometimes like wanting to focus on something and not being able to land a tricky focus rack in a way that like any mirrorless camera gives you the control yeah, to do that. I think that I think that maybe the way my question, especially because you guys are, you know, you're you're going to be working DPs, directors, and editors, so you're going to look for something closer to the full cinematic experience. And I think what I'm speaking to is the idea that like the capacity of this phone with its three lenses and an integrated filmic app to shoot say a, a review of something for youtube for mm -hmm. someone or maybe like i don't know a wedding video like there's a lot of maybe use cases where you could get like you could get two to three shots at once while you're going maybe a documentary maybe something like a little more rugged and cheap and low profile and like you're not looking to recreate the entire filmmaking experience or process you're just looking to capture quality images quickly yeah that's right? a very good point and and one thing i suppose you know it's like as as especially in, in, in videography we're always looking for what's going to get me uh, a great image and also be small enough so i can you know shingle this camera up against a wall so i can i can you know do my skateboard video so i can i can shoot my wedding and i can mount this to a to a small drone and not you know destroy the whole place maybe uh, so yeah, in that, in that kind of regard, it's kind of it's kind of surreal, I suppose, guys. If we take a step back and just say that here we are talking about an iPhone, and the first thing we're talking about is its camera capabilities to filmmakers 
rather than the fact that it's <laughs> then it's an iPhone. Like all the other specs we've seen before don't really matter to us because we're talking very seriously about, you know, the fact that, yeah, we could, in fact, shoot a project on this, which is true. I won't I won't deny that one bit. This is a good camera. Obviously, this is a perfect thing for if you're going to do that YouTube review, if you're going to be working in that media digital space that requires you to have faster turnarounds, faster workflows, as well as great quality just right out of the box. Well, and also they, they've addressed a few things with this release that are actually some of my bigger frustrations with older releases, right? So like one of the, like when you first said, oh, to shoot a review, because I will frequently like, if I'm reviewing a slider, it can be really complicated because I only own one nice camera. And if that camera's on the slider, I then end up shooting shots of the camera on the slider on my phone. So like I, one part of this is I need more than one nice camera. But another part of this is that one of my frustrations when shooting those things on earlier versions of iPhones is close-ups are terrible. Right. Like mm, it's yes. really designed to get no closer than like a full like a close up on a person, which is like, you know, haircut to teeth. Or, I mean, haircut to chin or whatever. But if I want to go in and I want to get a detail, I want to show a button on the slider. Like I reviewed the SERP uh, Genie 2 last week. If I wanted to go in with that iPhone and get like a really close up shot of like the detail of the on switch, you are not getting that with an iPhone. However, with the iPhone X Pro, they do have a special new close up mode, which is specifically designed to use all of the technology in the phone to recognize that you're getting really close to an object and to get you a better quality image out of the close up. That combined with the really wide angle view for landscape shots, so I could show up, I get my wide angle establisher of like Jordan standing there with the Pocket 6K, and then I shoot most of it on sort of the medium lens, and I get a few detail shots of like his fingers switching the on switch on and off with the close up lens. Like, I actually think that there is a model where you're going to get some interesting stuff out of this. But one thing I do have to point out, it's so funny to me because until you've done it, you don't know why it's so annoying. Filmmakers all forget that it, like, I know a lot of filmmakers are like, ooh, I'm going to get, I'm going to upgrade my phone to the iPhone X Pro and then I'm going to use it to shoot stuff. But the problem is, is then you're shooting stuff and people are calling you while you're shooting. (laughs) (laughs) You text, you text threads blowing up. (laughs) Um, And so a lot of times what you see happen is then people like, I think Soderbergh takes seven of the iPhone eights with him out when he did Unsane. I don't remember how many bodies he had out with him, but like. It's also interesting to me to have the better camera just as my primary camera as a filmmaking tool. Like we use Artemis for storyboarding and Artemis just does a little like if I'm trying to recreate the look of 135 millimeter lens, Artemis does a digital punch in on the um, image it's getting from the iPhone success. But that often looks really low res and crappy. And it'd be it's going to be like I will enjoy having a nicer looking image in my Artemis storyboards. I think that will be a nice feature of having a nicer camera in the iPhone X. And I think filmmakers will get more value out of that than actually shooting a lot of projects out of it. Some of you will shoot a lot of projects out of it. For some of us, it'll just be great to have our Artemis app be so much like slicker looking. All right, so are any of you guys going to exclusively get uh, one of these new iPhone 11s in order to shoot your next project? I'm going to get an iPhone X Pro in order to take pictures of my daughter. There it is. Uh, <laughs> that is 100% it. I have a one-year-old daughter, and I want better pictures of my one-year-old daughter. I am almost definitely going to upgrade to from the X to the 11 Pro. I'm just fascinated. The camera, the video is uh, very worthwhile to me. It's ex- it's exciting to me to explore it. Um, as long as I have a, f- I need a phone, you know. I, I like the idea of doing our next re- video review using the iPhone X. I think yes. that's exciting. And we're gonna keep um, we're gonna keep talking about this what we learn about this phone and ways to use it and ways to make it more pro than it is and accessories and all of those kinds of things because there's a lot there's a lot to dig into here with filmic as well. I believe 
<laughs> Ryan Koo mentioned this to me the other day, but Tommy Wiseau had this idea of mounting cameras on top of one another <laughs> that he could get coverage that way while he's shooting. And it's just odd that Apple is doing that and it originated with the room's Tommy Wiseau. I was going to say, that's 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 funny though, because remember for the room, he built that uh, that weird custom. It wasn't for multiple coverage, but he had, you know, the digital camera on the left side and the film camera on the right side. Oh, he, yeah. He didn't know, couldn't tell the difference. And he bought both of those, by the way, outright. So it took different lighting setups, different camera crews. <laughs> All right. So next up on our subject, the battle of the full frame affordable-ish cine cameras. Last week, Canon came out with the C500 Mark II. This week, Sony has come out with, just today, September 13th. You might not have seen this on the web yet. If you download this and listen to it on your drive to work before looking at the internet, this is where you are getting the news. So I am dragging it out and burying the lead just to be frustrating. Sony has come out with the FX9, a full-frame successor to the FS7 and the FS7 Mark II. So now we have two competitors... Uh, Sony versus Canon, they compete in, obviously, the, you know, uh, 5D versus A7 marketplace, and they are duking it out even further in the, like, ten dollars to $15,000 marketplace. Um, a little bit of context. The Canons obviously had their cinema line for a long time, C100, C300, C500. The original C500 didn't sell super well. The C700 has actually been kind of popular. That's their, like, biggest camera, like, twenty five dollars to $30,000 body. Um C500 came out a week ago, the Mark II, and it is a full-frame, interchangeable lens camera for 15 grand. Right now, on this podcast, this is probably the first time Jordan and, and George are, are following this story, uh, Sony is rebutted a week later with the FX9, a full-frame, $10,000 camera. Let's talk a little bit more about the FX9. Full-frame. It has a built-in variable ND filter. Right, which is Sony's whole thing with the FS7 Mark II that came out with that built-in variable ND filter, and it's a continuously variable ND filter. So a lot of cameras have an ND filter where you like switch it from an ND3 to an ND6 to an ND9, but this is a liquid crystal ND that smoothly transitions from like zero to 100%, and you can coordinate it with your um, uh, iris on the lens, so you can do like a depth of field rack I if you're like very ask. savvy. Ooh, baby! Yeah, That's, <laughs> there was a there was a product at Cinegear that that had the exact same same philosophy. It was this really really cool matte box. Uh, uh, oh, the Cinefade. That's right. That's right. So it's kind of nice. It's like it's kind of like that philosophy inside. I shot a test of the Cinefade in June. It's amazing. Usually, if you're shooting on a camera and there's ND filters, you like hit a button and it like clicks and then it switches from like three to six and it gets darker and you see this big like chunking click. A liquid crystal ND is basically, it's like a smooth transition. So it can be from zero to 100%. You can just turn it up and down and the ND filter gets darker or lighter using liquid crystal technology. So to, to the point, yeah, you can completely control, uh, you can completely control almost like aperture differences and everything. So you can go from a shallower to a, to a, to a far deeper depth of field while kind of making a smooth transition. Having a variable ND is a super cool thing to have in this, and it's a full-frame variable ND. They had that very continuous variable ND in the FS7 Mark II, but again, Super 35 sensor. This is now a full-frame sensor. Sony's also really well-positioned for this because E-mount has always been a really popular full-frame mount, right? So you've got all those alpha cameras, A7 and A9, so they have a lot of lenses out there in the field that are ready for this, ready to go, using this mirrorless mount. 
And one of Canon's big things was like, oh, it can be EL, it can be PL or EF. I tell you what, for like 40 bucks on photo or like 80 bucks on photo DIX, you can buy an E to PL adapter. You can buy an active E to PL adap- adapter for like 300 bucks. So yes, it doesn't have interchangeable lens mounts, but because it's E mount, it doesn't need them. And then let's get into the real killer feature. There are a lot of arguments for like why Sony's good at some things and not good at others. I still don't like their greens. Like I watched the test footage on this and the, the color green is still a little weird to me. Um, I like the green better in the FS5 Mark II actually than I liked it in the FX9, but nobody can argue with Sony autofocus. The autofocus and the Alpha 9, their like big uh, stills camera is criminal. You see it and you're just like, you're shooting video on the Alpha 9 and you're like, what are you talking about? How is that in focus? How is, how are you just tracking that? Really good eye detection, really good face detection, rolling it out in video modes. It's impressive. So that's the big thing with the FX9 is they're bringing alpha level autofocus tech into a cinema style camera. Just going to put ACs out of business. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not actually for those kind of jobs, right? right? You know what it really is? It's like you're a doc shooter. You're a doc shooter who has traditionally been running around all day with this camera on your shoulder, pulling your own focus. And you, if you get to know your camera well enough, you will start to see shots where you're like, oh, autofocus can handle this. And you will flick it on. It, it won't be something where you always have autofocus on. You'll have to make a decision about when it's the right move. But there will start to be shots where you're like, oh, autofocus is great for this. And you'll just flick it on and autofocus will cover you. Um, and what's interesting, they're also launching a cinema lens line. And what's fascinating about the cinema lens line is it's an autofocus enabled one. So cinema lenses usually have a repeatable focus ring, right? So you're like, I have like hard focus marks. Autofocus lenses tend to spin infinitely. This is a cinema lens where in manual mode, you can do repeatable focus moves or you can switch it to autofocus mode and it fully integrates with the FX9 and their like alpha nine level technology for autofocus. So it's like on the go shooting and I still have that quality of of, of, of like cinema lenses that I want without, uh, you know, having to, to go back to manual focusing or anything. Or I can switch back to manual focus if I want to do a deliberate like racking it out of focus mm. or racking it into focus. So it's a pretty interesting package. The FS7, I mean, the FS7 was a huge hit. The FS7, it's hard to explain how big a hit the FS7 was, how many of them there are in the field, how dominant that camera is. But the example I always like to give is, so Fuji, who has their own lens mount, the X mount, came out with these lenses called the MK zooms. They didn't come out in X mount. They didn't come out in MFT mount, the open mount. They came out in E mount. And they were very clear they came out in E-mount because of the popularity of the FS7. So a competitor, when launching a new lens, went with that mount first by like a year because the FS7 is so dominant. So it'll be really interesting to see these. You're not These aren't going to show up a lot on like, you know, it's still a $10,000 camera. I'm not going to buy one. Like it's not like a, but you're going to start to see a lot of docs, a lot of indie features, a lot of news gathering, a lot of like, that kind of space, I think it's going to be a really interesting thing. And I, and honestly, and somebody reach out to me on Twitter if I'm missing something, I don't see the argument for a C500 Mark II over this. Unless it's just about preferring Canon's color science to Sony. Where you can make an argument. I, I don't like them Sony greens. All right, so it's 4K 60p recording in full frame. So it can go up to 60 frames per second. It does 16-bit RAW. 
What's the price difference between the C500 and the, and the Sony that we don't officially know about yet? It's a 6K sensor. It's a dual base ISO. You can do 4K, 422, 10-bit internally. Uh, variable ND filter. Ten. Oh, it's eleven. It's eleven thousand. Sorry, it's ten nine ninety nine. It's eleven thousand. I guess then. I mean, this is awful, but I gotta do it. Uh, are you paying more green for the green? Boo! <laughs> Boo! <laughs> okay, had to do it. I had to do it. That, well, that's the Charles only thing, right? I mean, look. I think that. I mean, that's a ton of fantastic features, and you know, I, I I'll almost forgive Sony for not releasing uh, an A seven S three for for another year <clears throat> in order to uh in order to oh it's never coming that. jordan it's never I know, coming i i know but here's the thing i've kind of already moved on so i had hope but that's the one thing it's like i just i think that out of the box that something about the canons especially its relationship to, to skin tones and to subjects is just nicer i'm always fighting that sony green my entire life has been taking it out whether that's been a7s2 a little bit out of the f5 so I hope they can negate that because I'd, I'd really, I mean, the fact that they might have a leg up on Canon for for cinema cameras is crazy to me. Would you guys say that as we, like, we're entering a time when <clears throat> it seems like these camera companies need to differentiate in terms of specific use case? Like maybe the, that like exactly what you're talking about is like this specific Sony cinema camera is going to be valuable for these types of jobs, whereas you might, these other ones are going to be tailored towards others. Are we going to head more and more in that direction or are they going to keep providing, competing for being the one you need, the one that you would choose? I think it's, honestly, I think the way forward is emotional brand connection. People love Airy because they love Airy. People love Red because Red was there for them and they were indie and they were scrappy and they've got those like bomb inspired graphics. I think like emotion because it's getting harder and harder to argue logical. Like even these two cameras, like we're, we're nitpicking about the way trees look and trees are important, but like we're nitpicking about like the shade of green on the tree. Oh, you shoot Sony and your evergreens look a little too saturated. When you look shoot Canon, your evergreen trees look a little more natural. But that said, when you ask people about Alexa, they will always say, oh, it's the skin tones. Like they will every. Yeah. So there is still something like. Well, there is. But there's kind of a. So here's the thing. But though, is I mean, that real or is that in their minds? I, yeah. I well, know. that's what I was going to say. I so so have you guys seen like, I mean, I've seen so many skin tone tests with like the Alexa versus something like like the like the Ursa Mini Pro or something. And so I think that I think that nowadays we have such control over image, for instance, that. The complaint on, say, oh, there's too much uh, green inside your your evergreens uh, in your Sony cinema camera, uh, you can negate that and, you know, just pull that into post and, and suck that green out a little bit and you're probably going to be happy. There's so much versatility. I mean, the, the nice thing is this. So even just earlier today, we're talking about shooting scenarios for an iPhone. So versatility with these camera companies is very, very important. And as a, you know, and I don't want to be the kind of guy who has to own three, four different cameras because, oh, this is my, this is my feature camera. This is my dot camera. This is my music video camera. And I think that for a lot of shooters with their boots on the ground, it's more practical and, and it's more in tune with your own equipment to, to really kind of find that camera that, that yeah, can do it all. And in terms of do it all, it really depends, I think, ultimately on the shooter there are some people who who you know kind of put their nose up and will say that oh I'll never use a a, a Canon 500 Mark II to shoot my 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 kids bar mitzvah I don't know why you take such a camera to that but there you go uh, but you know but there are but at the same at the same time that you know the point is that we have all the tools and we have such 
control the image. We have we have such versatility in the cameras already that I think that it's a good thing that camera companies kind of just keep giving us the best out of multiple worlds, the best out of the cinematic world, the best out of the videography world, the best out of the quick turnaround world. And at the flip side, that's going to build up as you to your point kind of that better brand loyalty, that better emotionalism. Because that's how I feel about, I know I have that, for instance, about something like Black Magic. Because that, for me, was like the indie thing in film school that I'd never seen. I'd never seen a, oh, a yeah. flat log image, and it just blew my mind back in, in 2013, 2014, when, when we got some at the film school. So, But I have to tell a story, and this story might embarrass someone, and I hope they're not embarrassed if they listen to this. Get I'm going to tell a story. <laughs> Is it me? The, the story you are telling of... Well, but we have so much flexibility to play with it in post. Is a story that depends upon cinematographers being invited to post and getting to be there and give that input. And in an ideal scenario, you get to be there. In the ideal scenario, you have both the time and the availability to be like, yeah, those skin tones, I need to push them a little more peach that are feeling a little more tangerine. You get to put them where you want. Unfortunately, a lot of us, a lot of jobs, it doesn't always work out like that. I'm going to tell a story. At You know, every year at NAB, we shoot all those video content at NAB, right? That's one of our big things. You see me wandering around with the cameras, and, and Joey is out there, and Nick, and a bunch of other people have a camera on their shoulder, and they're shooting. And first off, having Alpha 9-level autofocus at a job like that, where we're shooting two videos an hour, oh, my God, Alpha 9-level autofocus would be great there. But also, we had a job a couple of years ago. We had an interview with a big CEO. And it was the day before the show, and so our real cameras weren't out yet. And so we shot it on another camera, and that camera was different than the main cameras. We handed it off to Post. A whole bunch of really smart Posties looked at the footage, cut the footage, and uploaded it to YouTube in Log. Because it was a Log camera. Mm. So even really smart people sometimes make those mistakes. So as a filmmaker, you always want to make sure that unless you are 100% sure, I hope that doesn't embarrass anybody um to tell that anecdote but like you know nab is an intense experience we're trying to get stuff up as fast as we can i understand why the mistake was made but as a filmmaker you want to be sure you are getting if you are not in control you want to be sure you're getting your image as close as possible to right um so that you don't have to worry about whether or not you're getting invited to post you know the footage you are kicking out so like that's what's exciting to me it's something like fx9 if you could put a lot on the fx9 so its color looked a little more canon like but you're getting that autofocus you're in a great shape this is also the reason why a lot of people shoot all their interview stuff on on airy amira because the amira the little brother to the airy alexa is like a dock style camera but it has airy style color science so even if you're not going to be in post you're shooting this stuff that looks so great out of camera that it doesn't matter if you're not in post that wasn't you, was it, Jordan? That was not me. I just want to, <laughs> I want to tell you that uh, that was not me at all. I know exactly who it was, and it was not me. <laughs> so, so person who are embarrassed, I don't know I'm so sorry, is. but also I washed my hands of, uh, of your crimes. And sometimes you are, I think to Jordan's point, you are the shooter and you know you're going to be handling the footage oh, throughout yes, the pipeline. Oh, yes, if you're a one-meal so, team. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. so we get so many one-man bands now or one-woman bands that the idea that's of That's why I'm switching to one-meal team. Yeah. yeah, and so that's, that's kind <laughs> yeah, of my thing. Is I, that, like is that. That I think what's what's so nice now is, is, is that, again, uh, there are the one-man, two-man, three-man bands that are going out there and, you know, for a lot of a lot of products, of course, like I, it's still very important to have the full regalia of a production team. It's very important to have your dedicated different hats who are very good about their specific tasks in order to make whatever project you know the best possible. I, I'm I'm very much a deep advocate for that, uh, especially since uh, one day I'm going to be uh, 
an old dusty DP and uh, cameras will keep getting heavier and heavier. So, <laughs> but you know, at the same time, I think that it is important for a lot of, a lot of people who are kind of, NAB is a perfect example of this because, you know, we're, we're a small efficient, except for a couple of gaffes, as Charles pointed out, uh, team. And so the entire point is we need to get content. We need to upload that content as fast as possible. It's, 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 hack and slash making sure that nothing slips through the crack all the pertinent information and then boom we just upload it as straight as possible so it's nice to know that okay cool i have a camera that's going to allow my shooters uh say with face detection they don't of all things they don't have to worry about anymore they don't have to worry about uh about where my subject is because so many of those of those of those uh booth people you know flow in and out they want to talk about the products they're very excited in that particular scenario and that's just another thing they don't have to worry about so that when it kicks back to the editors which is typically my end for nab full disclosure then uh that allows me to go okay cool i don't have to actually overlay b-roll as we get a re reposition for this footage because my footage is good immediately out of the gate and so for a high stress uh fast turnaround shooting environment like that a camera like this is perfect because i still get uh, my my high dynamic range cinematic quality that I can put a LUT over that I can do a really quick grade later and on top of that I know that I, I can still have the philosophy of a videographer which is that wherever I point the camera the shot has to be gotten alright so I'm going to wrap up this subject with this which is Panasonic get in this game <laughs> Panasonic get in this game get in this game what you doing you want Panasonic to release another? Uh, you want them to release another Vericam, or what you thinking? What do you want? I mean, I would take a seventeen thousand dollar full frame Vericam LT. I mm. would take a twelve thousand dollar full frame EVA two, um, or FVA or whatever they want to call it. I would take either one. I love me some Panasonic. Panasonic, you are like like that brand loyalty we all talk about. I have my Airy Love. Um, and going back to the thing you said about cameras keep getting heavier, it's so funny because they actually keep getting lighter and then we just come out with bigger needs for them. So like I shot <laughs> a couple times on the area L- left this summer and it, yeah. it feels like cameras 10 years ago. It's the same weight. They're not getting any lighter. We just wa- stuff more things into them. But I, I love Panas- I love Panasonic so much. The DVX100 was so big in my life and I love the EVA1 and I want there to be a like, you know, a full frame competitor. They have the sensor in the SF1H. So get in that game. All right, next subject. Moving on. This one is a really interesting article, I thought. Uh, why DPs are running out of work. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is funny because I saw... So I saw this story kind of going around. It uh, We initially saw it on IndieWire. Um, and then we covered it as well because uh, for our readers, it's obviously you know, really fascinating. Basically, a lot of the top DPs are talking about how there are less projects happening for them to shoot because there's the big tent poles and there's kind of the little smaller indie type things. But the industry, the landscape of the feature film industry has shifted enough that, and it was people, it's the people like Roger Deakins, Rachel Morrison, Bradford Young, um, who are sort of getting frustrated because there's just less mid mid budget and low budget uh, fare out there. And uh, one thing that comes up is the Goldfinch and Deacon's um, sort of bemoaning that like, and this is uh, th- this this happens, but it used to be like you know you could get a you could get a large scale drama say maybe 15, 20 years ago or more than 20, 25 years ago. 
um, that would be a big project to shoot. And there would be a lot of those in a given year. And now there's basically none, right? Um, maybe a couple a year. So if you think about it from the perspective of the cinematographer, like, so yeah, you're shooting, uh, you're shooting a Marvel movie or a Disney movie, or, or that's the same thing, <laughs> or you're shooting um, something really tiny, but you're not, where's, where's that kind of mid-range where, where historically, like, think about the, the DPs we all know and love, and this is kind of going outside the bounds of this article, but like uh, Gordon Willis, you know, like he didn't shoot, uh, he didn't shoot Superman, you know, he shot The Godfather, right there aren't like like and it's not to say that that it's not to put down the 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 lensing of those kinds of movies but you know great dps used to work their their magic and their craft on large scale drama right that would have been or like and that that's kind of where the the cinematic art evolves um visually well, but one thing that I thought was interesting in the article is it didn't talk about Robbie Richardson shooting the new Venom movie. But that's the really interesting thing for me is that, first off, we have some DPs that, like, Robbie Richardson is phenomenal and not really someone who's done a lot of that genre before or any superhero. So at one level, we see some DPs whose attitude is like, okay, there's no more mid-budget dramas. I'll shoot Venom. And I'll see what it, I'll see what it looks like when... Venom is what we do. And then the other thing is I think that space, the like godfathery type movies are all on television now. That's the other thing in the article is that it but but look, I mean you guys are like, you know, a lot of us want to see how much do you want to go see what Richardson does on 35 projected in a theater in a Quentin Tarantino movie? That's well, that's what I was going to I was going to say. Um as as Hollywood itself kind of diversifies elsewhere as the studio system kind of moves towards overseas, like more blockbuster sorts of things. I've, I've heard this lamentation before, not from DPs before, which is really, the, which was really the most interesting thing, obvious reasons about the article, but certainly from a lot of directors. Um, I read a William Goldman book uh, who did things like the princess bride. And he said, and I really like this. He said, every sequel is a horrors movie. And in the 90s that, you know, things started going to the accountants. And that's why you have these like bigger blockbuster films on the high end that just want to make oodles and oodles of money from every corner of the world. And then with the rise of independent world, yeah, you're getting a few mid-tier and a lot of low budget kind of stuff. But I don't know if if I suppose that's detrimental, I suppose, to the work of of, of the great veterans of the craft. Uh, but there's so much absolutely incredible content still being made to see on the screen. I don't feel like I've ever been deprived of that. You might have to look in other places, but... You know, I think that, you know, there's still that potential to make your godfathers or Lawrence of Arabia, certainly that there's, you know. Well, yeah, I think to to uh, to Charles's point, which, you know, the the thing is, like, I'm not watching it, but everything I've heard is that euphoria is like beautifully shot. So there's definitely like great images being captured and crafted on different platforms. It's just not happening like the way the, the maybe as often about drama on, I mean, Mad Men was beautifully shot, right? That was the closest. Chernobyl. Right. Chernobyl was beautifully Mm -hmm. shot. That's oh my God. I mean, Chernobyl was a movie. Chernobyl was just five hours long, but it was cinema. Like, yeah. And like in terms of one big distinction I like to make between cinema and television is that television is designed for continuity. It is not designed like it's very hard to land to the end of a TV show because you are launching a TV show with the idea in mind of we're going to leave a lot of threads open so that it keeps going. Whereas a movie is a self-contained unit. The pleasure of a movie is that amazing ending. 
And Chernobyl has that ending. It just is spread over five hours because it's such a big epic story. So I, you know, Chernobyl in every way is cinematic. I think one of the things the article really hits for me is this feeling of I have climbed a ladder and gotten where I wanted to go and discovered it's not what I wanted it to be anymore. I think really, and Roger Deakins actually got to climb the ladder to the top in the 90s where there was still 10 to 20 because there was never a hundred ten million dollar dramas getting made every year, right? Like that, the indie drama market has never been that big. But there was enough that like Deacons could do one, and Tom Richmond could shoot one, and Alan Curris could shoot one, and like there was enough going on of that. Like, God, how good is Blow that Ellen Curris shot? Like, such amazing work. That world has dried up quite a bit, and it's frustrating, I think, for all of us in our career, where you launch a career under one space. You know, like I launched my career before YouTube existed. And then the world changes and you're like, oh, indie, like 10 million, 10 to $20 million dramas is just not a thing now. Like, it's yes, just not. I think that, um, you know, we have, I'm working on a post that, you know, there's a book written about this, about whether or not 1999 was the best year for movies. And one of the reasons that 1999 is kind of a juncture between <clears throat> the world we're in now with the big franchises and the tent poles, but still that kind of indie film explosion that happened in the 90s. And so there was a nice mix and there was interesting stuff happening all over the place. And yeah, if you if you were like being inspired and coming of age and and getting ready to be a filmmaker, a writer, director, or a DP or anything in that time period or right after, you had a different idea of what you were getting into than you would if you were getting into it now or in the last ten years. Where like, and I think Jordan is reflecting that perspective, which is like, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of places I can shoot, and I have more flexibility to shoot, like. Ask Steven Soderbergh and he'll tell you, no, I don't miss the days when it was really hard to get film to shoot something. Like, I really like that every, the democratization of the process. So there's different perspectives, you know, on, on, all, on all of that. I have a foot kind of in two worlds about this because so someone like Roger Deakins for me, just looking at his cinematography and something like No Country for Old Men or uh, I remember seeing like even like True Grit uh, in theaters. And I that was the first Western I'd ever seen in theaters. And I was just so blown away i was like this is what i want to do uh yeah so you know and i've, I've talked to the man i've met the man uh and he's absolutely wonderful and is as genuine kind ever so yeah i'm kind of i am torn because those are the greats and i want the greats to always be the greats i want people i want other cinematographers obviously to have that opportunity also the fact of the matter is that i'm growing up in a world where the only time i personally ever touched film was in school uh now there's so many different cameras. There's so many different shooting philosophies. There's so many different tools that we have in our belt. And for like a cinematographer who's just getting into it, uh, you have to not only kind of own your own sort of equipment, but you also have to be willing to to go through all the ics and isms. You have to be willing to do videography, it seems. You have to be willing to make uh, social media content. You have to be willing to uh, to to turn around and, of course, make your your narrative, your feature, your your shorts, even web series now and everything. You know, there's just, there's so much versatility that I almost say like it's the rise of the middle class filmmaker. Like you can be, there's so much great video production work to do and you can get such great images out of it. And I see images all the time, both on the silver screen, on the new streaming platforms, just there are more movies being made than ever before. And so I think that maybe it'll take a second, I suppose, for for Hollywood's market to correct itself if that's the niche. But honestly, like I'm, I'm pretty content and excited to see what filmmakers are still creating. I don't think that there's a, there's a lack of, of cinematography or the lack of, of finesse in the, in the cinematic arts that's going on necessarily. Cause I just keep seeing so many examples, 
maybe not necessarily like in your multi-million dollar, hundred million dollar blockbuster film, but nonetheless, so many examples that still inspire me uh, as I'm as I'm in it now. Yeah, and like you know, I really aspired to be the greatest uh, stagecoach driver in all of London. Like when I was growing up, that's really mm-hmm. what I wanted to be. And then at one point, I just had to accept that there's only, like, four people who are still driving stagecoaches in London. And, like, that world's changed. And, like, there's, like, things, you know, David Mullen, amazing DP David Mullen, is shooting uh, Fabulous Mrs. Maisel and doing a bang-up job on it. And that show looks amazing. And you can see all of his skills in that narrative format. So we, like... We moved new directions. Rachel Morrison is directing and, and things like that. Like, if I had my choice of, like, if I were a billionaire, I would finance 10, $10 million indie dramas every year for 10 years because I love $10 million indie dramas. Some of my favorite movies are $10 million indie dramas. I'm bummed that the market forces make it so it's not so. But I also see why the market forces make it not so. Ooh, I wanted to go back. I'm going to wrap with this. George, if you don't have a headline yet for 1999 in movies, you've totally got to do something like take Magnolia to the Matrix or something. <laughs> you know, Magnolia's a road, and it came out in 99 in the Matrix. Anyway, it's like the first version. It's a it, you know you can riff on that, but just think about that because those are also two of the movies that make 1999 such a signature pivot year to me. Anyway, yeah. Okay, up next, tech news. So the big tech news this week is IBC is happening in Amsterdam. IBC is the European version of NAB. It's the International Broadcasters Convention. Uh, So not as much news as comes out of NAB, but a whole lot. Um, We're going to spread it out over a couple weeks. I'm not going to try and do too many stories at once. But the coolest thing I've seen out of NAB we have to talk about right now, and that's the Airy Orbiter. We have to talk about it. It's so cool. So Airflex is obviously super big in the LED market. Their sky panels, the 60, the 120, super big. You see them on all the big film sets. You read American Cinematographer. They're all over the BTSs. Every commercial is lighting with them. They have the best app with the Stellar app. They're super dominant. But they're soft lights. They're big, soft lights that aren't super punchy. Airy makes a bunch of punchy HMIs, but they haven't made a punchy LED yet. The Airy Orbiter is their punchy LED. And holy shit, it is a curb stomp. It is like, we're just going to do every feature. Do you want every feature in a light? We're going to put every feature in a light. No pricing's announced yet, although I'm going to guess over 10 grand. Um, it's probably like 575 or 1K equivalent power output. Uh, it uses six different colors of LEDs to create the full spectrum of light. Hive Lighting has also been doing that with their six colors on their chip for a couple of years now. Um, so any color you want to reproduce, you can reproduce pinpoint accuracy, zero to 100% dimming, interchangeable lens mount on the front. So you can put like a Leco mount on there, or you can put Fresnel, or you can put light boxes. All that stuff is cool, but it gets way cooler than that. So their, uh, built in is something called LOS, light OS. So they have an operating system now dedicated just to interfacing well with the Stellar app and controlling this light and holy cow, the stuff it can do. So first off, it's got like a really beautiful touchscreen on the back that you can also like remove and like walk around set with it, which is super great. But beyond that, you can control it with DMX, you can control it with Ethernet, you can control it with USB. Every connector you want is built in and it's crazier. There's a color meter built in. So we can read the ambient light and adjust its light based on the ambient light. So if you're like out shooting and you're like, okay, I'm going to use my LED and I'm going to match it perfectly to the light coming from the sky. And then slowly it shifts to sunset. 
the light can automatically read that light color change and adjust what it's outputting to match. You can also sync it up with your camera. So there's like a cable that you can run straight to your camera. So if you're using it for strobe light effects, it syncs with your camera shutter. Even crazier, this is the thing that I'm most excited about. There's built-in accelerometer and um, magnetometer readings that it can record. So it can record using the magnetometer what direction it's facing on the earth. Like, is it facing north? Is it facing south? And using the accelerometer, it can record, is it tilted up? Is it tilted down? Is it panned to the left? Is it panned to the right? So all of that data, pan, tilt, location data, can all be recorded. And that's where shit gets crazy. Because, like, one thing that's really common in VFX is, like, you know, let's say we're in a hypothetical scenario where we have, like, car lights sweeping across an actor in a VFX shot. And so you do, you use, on the green screen stage, you use this unit to do, like, the orbiter to do that, like, pan across your actor. Instead of trying to recreate that digitally in Nuke, like, trying to hand draw it to match, you can just record all of that pan data and all of the brightness data and everything that was going on with that light and just plug it into Nuke and it will create a fake light that matches it. That shit's crazy. That shit's the future. So that's the Airy Orbiter. It is the big news out of IBC. I cannot wait to get my hands on one. They're coming out in 2020. There's no price yet, but holy shit snacks. It's like all the features. You said that it has a detachable touchscreen panel at the very back. That I can like I can pick up, walk around with. Yeah, it doesn't look like it's wireless. It looks like it's got to be cabled in. So it looks like it's more like, oh, it's up there on a 20-foot stand and I can cable it down to the floor. I see a little cable coming out of the pictures. But don't forget the Airy Stellar app is the best of the lighting apps. And so you can have it up on your iPad and get all of that control as well. So what I think this panel is more for is not for I'm sitting at the monitor 50 feet away because then you'll have your iPad and you'll be using Stellar. This is more for I've rigged the unit up and I'm a Best Boy Electric or a Best Mule Electric and I don't have Stellar on my phone because Stellar costs 50 a month. And I want to be able to like set the light up, turn it on, get it dialed in, and then the DP will take it over from Stellar. So I don't think it, I don't think wireless is something you really need with this. Because I think the wireless is handled by Stellar. I think the touchscreen is just to give the more local control to whoever's actually the juicer or the best that's actually heading the light on a stand. In a, in a, in a world where you had two options, would you get this or would you get the new Sony camera? You can only pick one. Uh... This light's everything shy. It probably does have like a secret sensor inside. And Ari's just going to do a firmware update. Be like, oh yeah, by the way, we can shoot <laughs> 2K, 2K uh, raw. Um, I would probably still get the Sony camera just because... You can still, you know, this is, I'm, I've, I've not bought any $10,000 lights in my life. I've not bought a $10,000 camera, but I've bought like three to $4,000 cameras. I shoot a lot. Having a camera is a really nice thing to have. VFX nine is a really impressive sort of outlay from Sony. Um, if I had a hundred thousand dollars to build my dream cinema package, would this be one of the units? Oh yeah. What do you think a rental will be for this? Cause it seems like it would really serve the market best as a rental in a, in a package, right? It will be a rental. I haven't rented a one-off light in so long. Cause yeah, it's a package, right. Right. You're like, yeah. I will say this, this will be the most expensive rental. You will, this will be the first thing you cut when you're like, ah, oh, we don't quite have enough money. I need to save something. Oh, can I get lighting down 10%? All right, let's swap out. I won't get an orbiter. I'll just light HMIs. So that'll be the first thing to go. Cause look for a lot of jobs, you don't need all of these bells and whistles. 
all of these bells and whistles are great, but you can live without. But they do look so great. I mean, I feel like, like just for me, whenever we, I, I'm a broken record on these types of things, but whenever I like read about or we cover one of these kinds of lights, I really feel like it's something right out of Star Trek. Like it's like what? Like like 15 years ago, there was no light. <laughs> these these things of like having three people on set like controlling and adjusting and tweaking the light from like devices without moving it it's just like what how did this happen so that is the area orbiter the big news out of ibc we will have some other news out of ibc there's a new roto light there's new sigma primes there's a new irix lens but that'll be we'll, we'll be dripping it out over tech news in the next couple weeks all right and then our final section of the week we have an ask no film school question from yp and the subject line is delivery and uh, first off, YP, we like it if you use your full name. But, you know, I'm going to answer your question anyway, because it was a fun one. Uh, I'm just finishing my feature, and the post facility have asked what output I want. For starters, I'm sure I need these five. I need ProRes 444, texted and textless, H264, texted and textless, DCP. I, I want it all in 2K and in 4K. I want it all in both 16.9 and 239. And um, I need two versions of the subtitles. So we're looking at like two dozen versions. That seems like a lot. What would you recommend? So the first thing I'm going to tell you is I used to own a post house and we made a lot of money in this step. Generating versions for people is really easy work. And we charge you by the hour for it. So like this is an opportunity. Like I'm sure your post house is very normal, like healthy, respectful people. I'm not calling them shystery. I made a lot of money doing versioning in a post house. I would recommend that you get one master version from them and you learn to do the other versions you need yourself. So like I would say if you shot 4K and you mastered to 4K and you did your VFX 4K, you should do a 4K texted and a 4K textless. And then what most of my clients did who were like good with this stuff and many, half my clients did this, half, the, half my clients wanted us to do all versions and we did what we charged a lot for it. But half of my clients were like, I just need a text in a text list and I will do all my versioning myself. This is called versioning. Because you're looking at two dozen versions. And that could be an extra $4,000 on the bill without even batting an eye. Another thing you know is you want both DCI scope and 16 by 9 full frame. So the difference between 16 by 9 scope and DCI full frame is like 100 pixels. Does the Avengers do a version for each? Absolutely. 99.9% .9 of the projects that I work on master to one or the other. So if you're like, I'm getting a big theatrical release with 200 screens, you mastered a DCI, the Digital Cinema Initiative, and then when you make your 16 by 9, you just crop the edges off. Most other projects just master to the 16 by 9 format. So much of your film's life is going to be on streaming and Vimeo and OTT, and that's a 16 by native, 9 native place. And it's literally like 100 pixels different to do the DCI. And as you've noticed, if you do everything at 2K and 4K, DCI and 16 by 9, and um, uh, you're looking at a lot of different versions right there. And we're talking about a feature film. Hard drive space is going to start to fill up. Redundancy becomes an issue. So what I would really recommend is you, you talk to the post house about a texted and a textless. And you said you had two different languages and subtitles, so maybe two texted one for one subtitles, one for the other, and then a text list at one resolution, 4K 16 by 9, say. And then spend a little time with something like Adobe Media Encoder or DaVinci Resolve, which is free, and you can do all of these things in Resolve, and learn to do your own versioning. 
one of the places indie filmmakers can really save themselves money is learning to do their own versioning, learning to do their own H.264 for web, learning to do your own like simple versioning is a very powerful way. Because also you don't know every version you're going to need in the future, but if you have that one master you can trust in four years when some other platform is like, hey, can I have your film, but could you add a subtitle to this part? You know how to do it. So that would be my recommendation. I think that is like a, like I would say half of the projects we delivered, it was just one big revolu- resolution pro as 444 file that in texted and one in textless. And that was it. Jordan, does that jive with what you've been doing a lot of? Yeah, uh, of course not to that that huge robust extent because my my uh, my uh, experience as an editor fortunately tends to be I, I actually as a deliberate point not to do massive projects which are going to take me multiple like twelve versions to edit out. But I have heard from a lot of different things I've shot as a cinematographer that that is precisely the sort of of, of outputs that you want to do. So that's that's precisely right. I uh, I'll just say that. It reminds me the question of the nightmare of delivery as a producer or a post soup and how many things are on that list and how expensive and time consuming it can be. And it's interesting to hear from Charles, who ran a post house, that it's like, yeah, that's where we make a lot of money. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah. That's where we, we end up so spending much money on delivery. That's yeah. where we end up spending a lot of money that we didn't necessarily save for when we were shooting our indie feature. And I will say, though, that one thing, there's a couple things um you can consider one is like learning to do some of your versioning yourself the other is meeting some people or making some friends who can do some versioning for you that you know you can exchange favors or something else for um the other thing i would say is that sometimes at least what i did with the feature was i talked to the distributor about what we could take off that list like what do we what do we need to deliver you to just get this initial like whatever this initial release is going to be because what we ended up doing is you know and it depends on the structure of the deal it depends on the project but in in my in the instance of my feature we did a handful of things we could afford to do initially to get it out on the platforms we had to for release and then Later, there needed to be something in another language or there needed to be text in another language. So then they started taking money away from us because that would be, you know, part of what we were going to get was, oh, well, we have to do more posts. We have to finish this way. We have to deliver this version. It's like that that became part of the deal was that it had to it, it came out of the the income we were getting from those additional platforms. So you might be able to cut down on what you have to deliver if you can just go back to them and say, hey, What's the least we can do initially? Yes, absolutely. That is very true. Also, a lot of times distributors will spend you spec sheets that are out of date. I totally have one client that was delivering to a big network for years. And in 2014, 2015, we were still expected to deliver a standard def file. Standard def distribution stopped in North America in 2008, but they never updated their spec sheet. So we kept making them a standard def file because it was in their spec sheet. So you can go back to your distributor and ask questions about like, what do I need now versus later? And like, what do you actually need? And uh, those spec sheets don't get updated nearly as often as we wish they would. Yeah, you don't need to give them a VHS copy or a mini DV. And if they're asking for that, that's weird. Yeah, that's a flag. (laughs) <laughs> well, this was a really fun episode, guys. Uh, uh, yeah. All right. So um, you can always find me on Twitter at Charles Hain. I have a whole tech news podcast called The Week in Film Tech at theweekinfilmtech.com. That is just tech news. Um, I also, you can hit me up on the Instagram at Charles Hain and all of my articles on No Film School and presumably more videos soon. 
Yeah, and you can read about all of this and more at nofilmschool.com. You can find me at George Edelman on Twitter. You can email nofilmschool at ask at nofilmschool uh, at gmail.com. Or you can email us at editor at nofilmschool.com. Thanks, guys, for having me on. Uh, if you want to follow me along, you can do so at Instagram at jpachecofilms or my website for my work at jpachecofilms.com. Or you could probably poke one of the no film school people. And uh, I'm kind of on a ball and chain with them, so I have to answer regardless. <laughs> do, do, does your dog have an Instagram? <laughs> I knew it, called it. <laughs> yeah, he's got things to say. Got it. But, but he doesn't uh, have a separate he appears on my Instagram. Gotcha. Quite, quite. All right. See you guys all next week. Have fun making movies. <laughs> <laughs>